The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So it's such a beautiful thing to see that <laughs> explosion or <laughs> arising of that sweet social energy. And then just uh, let it settle. But the love doesn't need to settle. I can keep shining. <laughs> So some of you know this, but uh, over the past maybe 20 years now, maybe even longer, we've been doing uh, around the solstice uh, reflection on this traditional teaching from Buddhism, taking the three refuges and precepts. And it's really like everything in early Buddhism is meant to be this pragmatic reflection. Um, And it's... You know, it comes out of what I was talking about during the guided sit. And the question we could ask ourselves, you know, are we, you know, as a human being, as a person who feels, a sensitive human being, you know, are we in need of a refuge? Are we in need of any guidance? Do we need help? You know, and a lot of us, have a habit, a conditioned habit to say, no, I don't need help. I can handle this. I can handle my life. So then those of us who are like that, then we just need to be beaten up a little bit more by life until we finally say, you know what? I do need some help. I don't know what I'm doing. And this is, in a way, this is sort of the first step in being, becoming a wiser, kinder, more free human being is to acknowledge our predicament. Like, I don't know everything. Like, I don't know everything about how to be happy. Because a lot of what I do to be happy doesn't make me happy. And it doesn't make people around me happy either a lot of the time, right? In my attempts to be happy. And in a way, that's not a bad definition. One of the definitions of suffering is in trying to be happy causing myself and others to suffer, right? So trying to be happy in a way that doesn't work turns out to be the cause for suffering, human suffering. Like, I mean, even in big picture, in a big picture sense, invading another country, right? We do that, why? We want to be happy, we want to be safe, we need to go get rid of the bad guys, and then I'll be safe, then I'll be happy, So a lot of the injustice, a lot of the hatred, a lot of the greed, really is just human beings collectively trying to be happy. But they're confused about what it is to be happy, right? We think having more, for example, will be happy. Or I don't want to know about that. I want to be happy, so I don't want to know about the problems in the world or my the different ways that I might participate in these cycles of suffering and injustice and discrimination. You know, I just want to be my little bubble over here. And the question is, does that actually, can that actually work? This is for us to check out. It doesn't seem like it. So part of this, traditional recitation, taking the refuges and precepts, as we call it, it's just, as a human being, kind of from this more honest place of humility, 
knowing that I need help, knowing that I don't know everything. The Buddha said in one of his talks, when people have a more honest, unavoidable connection with their suffering, they do one of two things. They either complain about it or blame somebody or something, right? Or just scream. Or they undertake a more reasoned search. Does anybody know what to do with this experience of human suffering? Has anybody learned, you know, through the course of so many folks before us, humans before us, not so different, having a body and a mind, having relationships, trying to negotiate their life. Has anybody learned anything about what to do with the exposure that comes with being a human being? That would be a wise thing for a human to do, to check it out. What if, what if other people figure it out? And then you try it out. Does it help? Did they actually discover something that's useful? Or is it just, you know, a false hope? And, you know, we've done our share of checking things out, hopefully. And we probably have found some things that have helpful and found some things that turned out not to be helpful. Yeah. Oh, you're not doing well? Well, let's go drink. <laughs> you know, a lot of us tried that out or used drugs or, you know, and we still try that out. Are you sure that didn't work? Let me try it one more time. <laughs> Seems to work for a few moments, maybe even a few minutes, possibly a couple hours. But then, you know, doesn't really change things. We end up sort of back where we started. There's a famous uh, Buddhist saint from the ninth century, Shantideva. He said, we are like senseless children who shrink from suffering, right? Children who don't like to suffer, but love its causes, right? <laughs> we love to set suffering in motion, but we don't like to be the one who suffers. And this is, you know, this is part of waking up this basic humility. This is what gets people to show up at a place like Common Ground, right? Uh, a little bit of a dent in this sort of arrogant certainty that I know how to take care of myself. Because it's embarrassing to say to our friends and colleagues, you know what? I'm 60 years old and I don't know how to be happy. You know, I don't even know what direction. I kind of, I know a few things about what doesn't work, but I seem to keep wanting to go back there. So maybe I even haven't, I haven't even learned that lesson completely, you know, what doesn't work. Looking for love in all the wrong places. You know that line? <laughs> Looking for love in too many faces. It's an old country western, if you don't recognize it. So the Buddha had sort of a very simple um, summation of, like, a way forward. I mean, it's just so commonsensical. Stop doing what's unskillful. Do what's skillful, and now this is this is maybe a little bit more uh, unique to the Buddhist teachings because the first two, you, we'd get this from any kindergarten teacher, any mother, father, any wise, relatively wise mother, or father would say, "Stop doing the bad stuff, start doing the good stuff," right? But the piece that the Buddha added, which is still very commonsensical, he says, "Develop." the heart. And by that I think he means 
Like, if you're going to stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff, you're going to need to be really sensitive. You're going to need to be able to discern what's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff, what's skillful and what's unskillful. You need a really balanced, sensitive heart. So, because what we think when someone says, don't do the bad stuff and do the good stuff, then we immediately say, tell me what the good stuff and the bad stuff are. You know, and then we get our list. But life is much more nuanced than any list is going to be able to help us with. You know, like even something pretty obvious, like don't kill. Well, maybe there are some times when even that obvious bad thing, you know, yeah, stop killing. Maybe, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I, I have an open mind that maybe sometimes in order to protect life, we have to take life. I haven't been in that situation, but I don't know. So the thing is, we, it's nice to have some of those directives like don't kill, don't steal, you know, don't tell lies. But we need this powerful sensitivity to really sense in all the more complicated, nuanced situations in our lives, what's the difference between being skillful or unskillful in this moment? And in Buddhism, what makes something skillful or unskillful isn't what our parent or our boss or somebody you know, with some authority tells us. It's the impact or the impression in our own heart that's that, in a sense, gets the final word in terms of whether what we've said or thought or done is skillful or not. What's the impression? Having said that, having done that, ha- even having thought that, what impression has been laid down in my sensitive heart? What's left over from that action, from that thought, from that those words that I spoke? And if it's, a crunch, you know, if the heart is burdened, then we say that was unskillful. But you see, it's so easy to lie to ourselves when we're not sensitive. You know, all the time I can do something that's not so skillful and pretend at least for a while that it's skillful. But when I'm when the mind is really sensitive, when the heart is sensitive, balanced, clear, awake, stable, then it's not so easy to lie to myself. I may want something I said or done to be skillful, but in a way, the heart doesn't lie. Like what's left over, the yucky feeling, oh, maybe that wasn't, maybe that was a little or even a lot off, unskillful. Maybe I need to make amends. Maybe I need to grow up a little and stop fooling myself. As much as I might want that to be skillful, maybe I have to develop some loyalty to this sort of this inner barometer of morality. And this is sort of interesting in Buddhism. I was just talking to somebody about this because in, from a Buddhist point of view, we say that morality isn't something external, you know, like an external force tells us what's right or wrong. It's internal, but even though it's internal, it isn't relative. We don't 
no individual gets to decide what's right or wrong. The sensitive heart knows. When we're acting from a selfish, self-centered point of view, a greedy, hateful point of view, the, there's a residue. You know, in Buddhism, we might even say there's a karmic residue. Right? There's an, an impression has been left behind. So, so in terms of the refuges, that's really the practice of sensitizing the heart. You know, we say, and it can sound like we're worshiping this guy who died 2,500 years ago that we call the Buddha. But really, the Buddha is a title. It means to be awakened, to be awake. So because the Buddha, this person 2,500 years ago, he had a name, but, you know, they started to refer to him years after by the title, you know, the Buddha, the awakened one, right? So when we take refuge in awakenness, in being awake, we're not taking refuge in somebody who lived a long time ago. We're taking refuge in that human beings before us have become more and more and more awake. And so we're taking refuge in that process of being awake instead of the process of being distracted and confused and lost in thought. It's really important to understand that Buddhism in this way or It's not even quite correct to call it Buddhism. The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He taught Dharma, which Dharma just means the way it is. So he was teaching this sort of practical pointing out when your heart is sensitive and balanced and clear, you see something that we normally don't see, like the way it is. Oh, There is skillful and unskillful. You could say this is the birth of human wisdom. When a human being is not so overwhelmed by life, by just survival, and they have enough balance to realize the difference between being skillful and unskillful because they're just being, living a more settled, stable life, they notice, like, oh yeah, when I act that way, it feels really good. The heart's light. The heart is unburdened, right? And when I act or think or speak in this other way, there's something left over that I don't like that feels heavy. I don't want to do that again. Without that inner sensitivity, that inner compass, we're not fully a human being. We're just sort of getting pushed around by whatever habit is strongest in that moment trying to survive, trying to get through the day, the moment. And that's really unfortunate, you know, it should break our hearts because we are that person some of the time and some people are that person a lot of the time where they're just overwhelmed by survival and dealing with the oppression that they're experiencing, the injustices, the difficulties, illness, whatever it might be that's coming their way. And they they don't really have that opportunity to begin to see more clearly, feel more deeply. Okay, this is how I can relate to the conditions of my life in a way that doesn't add more suffering. Isn't that the most heartbreaking thing we can see is somebody who, like us, wants to be happy, wants to be free, but because of 
being overwhelmed because of the force of habit and the difficult circumstances, what they're doing, how they're responding to their difficulties, they're making things worse. And it's not even like a good friend can help them and tell them, hey, you're making it worse, right? Because sometimes when we're that person in that place, it doesn't matter if we have wise friends around us, right? Because we're overwhelmed. We, we have our blinders on. We only see things based on our strong habits. And so we feel justified in hating or we feel justified in greed and hopeful thinking or closing down, being distracted, as if that's going to make a big difference or add or get rid of the pain. So the basic teaching was to do good, you know, to do what's good. So to whatever degree we've intuited from our own sensitive heart what's actually skillful, we do that. And to whatever degree we've determined, discerned what's actually unskillful, because it left that heavy trace in the heart, we practice, we learn how to creatively refrain from doing that stuff that's unskillful. Right? It's not easy. Like if we have a groove in our personality to act out in certain ways, it's not so easy to change those habits. But to the degree we remember, like, hey, you remember when you did that before and how much it hurt? Right? We, we get clever, like, okay, I'm going to hang out with this person because I'm less likely to act out in that unskillful way when I'm hanging out with this person or I'm over at Common Ground or I'm doing this or doing that than when I'm hanging out with these other people. Right? So we get skillful at avoiding, refraining from doing stuff doing the stupid stuff, right? As some of you remember that line that Barack Obama got beaten up about when he was talking, I think he was talking about foreign policy. He says, oh, we've got to stop doing the stupid stuff or something like that. <laughs> but that's not a, a small thing. I mean, people thought, well, that's a pretty limited foreign policy. It wasn't obviously a whole foreign <laughs> policy, but I mean, if a, a country like the United States could stop doing the stupid stuff, we'd be a lot further along. <laughs> and so a lot of times, you know, we want from our spiritual practice something more lofty than stop doing the stupid stuff. But let's not underestimate that sensitivity because that's actually, as a human being, that's actually where we initially have a lot of authentic wisdom. We have some sense of what the stupid stuff is. I mean, not from an outside authority, from our own moments of banging our head on life, falling into the holes of life, suffering. What, have, what has life directly, immediately taught us doesn't help. I mean, wouldn't that be, this is actually a good time of year. We do this a little bit, by the way, in the New Year's Eve program, like uh, later in the evening for those who stay t- toward the end. We have a group circle and we basically talk about like, the difficult lessons learned and what we're grateful for learning, even if it was a really painful lesson. What has life been teaching us through the experience of suffering? Oh yeah, don't grasp here. Don't hold there. Don't try to control what can't be controlled. Don't live in, you know, 
addicted to hopes. Practice being content. Don't practice being discontent. You know, content with what we have. I mean, for example, today we could spend five, six, seven hours cultivating thoughts of discontent and hoping that our friends will give us presents that will make us content, you know. (laughs) Or we could spend that same time reflecting about being content with what we have, the slacks, the pants we have, the shirts we have, the electronic devices we have, the home that we have, the friends that we have. Learning to appreciate what is actually good in our lives, good around us. Does it mean that we don't aren't attracted to certain things? But it's interesting how little time we put in to practicing being content with what we have. And that's what that is about, you know, the difference between what's skillful and what's unskillful. We see that like the intention to be generous. Practicing generosity makes us feel good. I mean, if we give too much, we won't feel good. Too much time, too much money, or whatever it might be. But skillful giving feels good. That leaves a really good taste. When we say something at the right time in the right way that is really a generous thing to say to somebody, a wise and generous thing, every time we think about it, it feels good. It felt good when we did it. It feels good when we think about it later. Every time we refrain from doing something stupid, it feels good. Oh, I'm so glad I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I could have said that to my spouse, but I didn't. You know? And it wasn't like, yeah, I could have said that. There was maybe some truth in it. But there's also, there's, you know, truth isn't just like one-sided. There are lots of truths. Like, sure, you could say that, and there will be natural, inevitable consequences. But this other thing is also true. Like, you don't need to say that. That's also true. <laughs> you know, and that this person has redeemable qualities. There's a great line from um, Ajahn Sumedho, one of our senior teachers, a Westerner, but also a Buddhist monk, somebody who initially trained <coughs> in his 30s as a monk in Thailand and then has been a monk in the West, opening up some monasteries over the decades since then. He's now in his mid-80s, but he has this very sweet, simple definition of loving-kindness. Not dwelling on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside of oneself. Isn't that? Normally we want a very lofty definition of what love is, what loving-kindness is, right? But he says, and this is so straightforward, so pragmatic, like just imagine for an hour or a couple hours today, really resolving to not, does he say, not dwell on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside of ourselves. Now, how to do that without being kind of sentimental or idealistic? Because there are some things that are definitely bad, you know, unskillful things in our friends, unskillful things in our society, Right, But we can be aware of it without dwelling on the faults or the unpleasantness. We can really be dwelling on the possibilities. Like, See, this is even true about the precepts that we'll recite in a little bit. Undertaking the training not to harm living beings. Right? That's an insp- inspiring idea, not to tell lies, 
not to take things that haven't been given. To be a sexual being without causing harm. Right? That's an inspiring aspiration. Not that we can completely fulfill that, but you see, it's, it's quite uplifting just to have the thought, okay, yeah, I am going to end up speaking a lot in my life. What a noble challenge not to cause harm with my words, right? Not to speak in a way that makes things worse for me and others. Or not to be a sexual being engaged in sexual activities without harming. Not that, again, we'll be perfect. But you see, like, okay, that, that's quite energizing, those images, or even not killing. Well, that's an interesting thing. How do I get my protein? What do I do about mosquitoes or spiders or the bad guys or, you know, whatever we think justifies killing? So it's sort of like, well, let me, or even more sort of nuanced, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm. So you, we really get a sense of why we need the third instruction to undertake. So there's, you know, refrain from doing unskillful stuff, cultivate what's good, and develop the heart. Develop the sensitivity of the heart so we know the difference between what's skillful and what's unskillful. That clear, calm, balanced, present moment awareness, mindful awareness, right? Because then, really, more than anything else as we develop a practice, it turns out there's really only one meditation object. Right? So when we talk about being present, we don't mean like, oh yeah, the wood is so smooth on the lectern, or the air temperature feels like this. I mean, that, those things, those sort of ordinary present moment experiences can be kind of a training for our mind that wants to be more present. But actually, the ultimate present moment object is feeling the heart, the heart that's being impacted every moment of our life, what the heart, sensitive heart, feels. Because that's how we know whether we're setting emotion, happiness, or suffering. What are we feeding this life? It's not so much the circumstances that are coming our way, because we don't have much control. We have a little, but not certainly not complete control how people treat us, right? What's happening in the world, whether the tsunami hits me or hits some other folks. I don't know if people heard about that tsunami in Indonesia, um, I guess last night or sometime uh, real soon. So anyway, you know, we don't really know about external conditions, but how I relate, that's always in play. What my mind, what my heart, the sensitive heart, how it's, opening, relating, receiving what it's doing with experience, the conditions of the moment. That's always in play. Whether I'm justifying hate, justifying greed, justifying closing down, distraction, or whether I'm finding a way to let go or to allow, or whether I'm finding a way to be kind, whether I'm finding a way to be aligned with non-harming, right? So there's, this is really the purpose of that profound sensitivity. And that's really what we mean by 
taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma. So we'll do the recitation now, and everyone's invited, but don't feel like you have to do it. It's this traditional chant we do. It's on page 35. We'll need uh, five volunteers to read a reflection about the five precepts that we do. So if I could have some readers for pages 36 and 37. Anybody want to help out, Leah? Do you want to do number one? Good. Joe, you want to do number two? Great. Philip, you want to do number three? Who wants to do? F- Great. You do four. One more. Corey, you want to do five? Great. So just a few things. Some people do this gesture. It's called Anjali, but as a, growing up as a Catholic, I use this quite a bit. And it's just a gesture that folks around the world have used off and on through history just as a sense of gratitude or um, in a way it helps organize the mind like, yeah, this, this is important. Sometimes people do this like namaste, this greeting, right? Like I don't want to just make this a trivial thing, so I put my hands together. So if that gesture works for you, you can use that, but don't feel like you got to do that. So the way this little ceremony begins is we chant namo tasa, this phrase there you see sort of in the middle, and it's a traditional homage to our teacher, the Buddha, this original folk who lived 2,500 years ago. And then we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha means being awake. Dhamma means the way it is. Sangha means the fruit of being intimate with our life is that we get to be skillful, kind, and wise. That's what Sangha means. So we say that three times. That's with the Dutiampi, that means the second time, and then later you see Tatiampi, that's the third time. So we're going to do it in the Pali language. That way we connect with those <coughs> around the world who sort of align with these teachings. And then on page 36 and 37, we'll do the five precepts. First, then the Pali, then in English. And then the five volunteers will read some comments from one of our senior teachers in uh, sort of Buddhism here in the West, this Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh has some reflections that are very useful. So let's do this together to end the day. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranang Gachami Damang Saranang Gachami Sangang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Damang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Damang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranang Gachami 
I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom of a heart free from clinging. You just reflect for a few seconds on that quality of wakefulness. And now Dharma. I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. So we're just considering this possibility of being intimate with Dhamma the way it is. Now the third. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. And of course, sometimes, in a sense, we're Sangha, this body-mind. We know the way for moments at a time. Now let's do the five precepts. First the Pali, then English, then we'll listen. First one. Panati pata where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in my world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So we just reflect a little bit about what non-harming that training might look like in our own life. And now the second. Adinadana where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. Again, just reflecting. And just to go beyond the sur- surface, like, well, yeah, I don't steal, so I guess I'm good. But to think more deeply about taking what hasn't been given. And now the third. Kame su michachara. Where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment to preserve the happiness of myself and others, 
I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. And now taking a few seconds and reflecting on this part of our lives and how to be skillful Good in our four. Musawada where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain and will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. Reflecting for a few seconds on speech. Now the fifth. Sura Maria Majapamaratana, where Amani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family my society by practicing eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body and my consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to misuse alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual growth, such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I'm aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all beings. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the five mindfulness trainings I about to study and practice. Contemplating that for a moment. And then we finish up here at the bottom of page 37. 
idame silang magafalanyana sapachayo hotu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. Taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings, and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. Good. So feel free to find uh, your own way to do this recitation or this reflection in a more organic or informal way. Anytime that is useful. Some of us do some version of this every morning just uh, at the beginning of a sit. Will you press it in the back? And you can get this chant book online and if you need to or want uh, these pages here that we just went through. So we're going to end now with some announcements Lisa has, or I'm sorry, Kathy has. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, just a few announcements. This afternoon there is a Mindfulness and 12 Steps Recovery Retreat right here um, from 1 to 5. So when we're done, um, we can leave the cushions as they are, but those of you who are able, if you can help to carry the chairs downstairs, we'd appreciate that and put the um, chant books in the boxes at the back by the doors. Um, and then upcoming uh, on the New Year's Eve, uh, there's a celebration in the evening starting at 7.30 for uh, New Year's Eve, a celebration and potluck. Uh, this is a night of practice, reflection, sharing, and celebration. So please uh, join us if you are able and care to. Uh, there is a RSVP online that's requested if possible. Um, but don't hesitate to come if you didn't RSVP. Uh, you can come to part or all of that event. And then uh, the last announcement is just to um, make note of a half-day retreat with Mark coming up on January 5th from 1 to 5. And, and Mark, did you want to say something yeah. about the kind of the schedule? Yeah, so we have our, I think it's probably our 25th or 26th year-end retreat <clears throat> beginning on uh, December 27th, the Thursday and goes to New Year's Eve, the 31st. So we won't have any regular scheduled programs during that time. That means that Sunday, next Sunday, the 30th, right? No programs in the morning or evening. Um, so come on Wednesdays. Both Wednesdays will happen, but no Sunday program on the 30th. And other programs are also canceled that during that uh, part of the year-end retreat. Good. Any other announcements for the community folks have? Thanks for coming, everyone. Happy holidays for those of you celebrating the holidays. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.